and having the editorial audit and upload fall on the same day too mm-hmm. like that's just like blam mm-hmm. <laughs> blam so, indeed blam <laughs> um how do we start it again welcome to talking underwater yep okay <laughs> Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water. One podcast. I'm Lauren Baltus, Managing Editor of Stormwater Solutions. I'm Bob Crossan, Managing Editor of Water and Waste Digest. And I'm Lauren Estes, Managing Editor of Water Quality Products. New Managing Editor. So this is a special episode. Um, We mentioned last month that um, we had some transitions. We had um, our co-host Amy transition to another magazine in the company, in our sister, um, in our um, umbrella company, a sister publication. Um, And we're welcoming Lauren, who is the new managing editor of Water Quality Products, to be a co-host. And so it shouldn't be confusing at all having two Laurens on the podcast. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think that you guys have differing vo- different enough voices for people to tell the difference. Do we? I have a pretty high-pitched voice. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Um, okay. No, yeah, so Lauren's been an associate editor for, wa- for water quality products and stormwater solutions for quite some time, so we're excited to have her move up and take a greater role with WQP. Yeah. Um, she's jumping right in and gets to go to WQA the same month that she starts as managing editor. So. Yeah. So I have been a big fan of talking underwater since day one. <laughs> so real honor to join the team. Let's Thanks, see. Guys. Who is our number one fan? Lauren Estes or Robin <laughs> Pester, our publisher? I think Robin might be our number one oh, fan, yeah. but yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, she's a big advocate. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody thinks they're in the running for number one fan, please feel free to email us. Um, we'll talking set up under- a healthy competition. Yeah, talking <laughs> underwater at sgcmail.com. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway. Um, I guess we can get down to some business. I, um, I was at Water Week in Washington at the beginning of April, and um, I wanted to talk a little bit about my experience there. I was there with the Water and Wastewater Equipment Manufacturers Association, so this is an association specifically for the OEMs, the original qu- equipment manufacturers, and um, they had sessions multiple days on education and whatnot regarding regulations and legislation in D.C. So they and things that were going to impact them as manufacturers, as more specifically. So a lot of it centered on what's the situation with tariffs, what's going, what's moving forward with that. But then also they had um, some speakers to talk about the Buy America programs and to talk about the American Iron and Steel Act and how that impacts them as manufacturers and where they can source their iron and steel from, how they should be sourcing it, and if they Mm -hmm. want to get those um, certifications and stamps and whatnot, what they have to do to make that happen. Um, So there was a lot of stuff on that front, but then the other thing was just the overarching issues with contamination throughout the country, um, one being the algal bloom issue in Florida. So Dr. Brian LaPointe was there talking about that and was the red tide. Mostly at like 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 Okeechobee. Yeah, okay. and how how that's so intricately linked with failing septic tanks. Um, mm. So there's a big discussion on that. We had an article last year, I want to say in September. Um, about that Brian actually wrote about this issue. So if you want to learn more, you can check that out. Um, but it's still a, a big issue. That it's showing up in different areas like Louisiana and other areas where 
the septic tanks were essentially meant as a um, basically a small like a, a small system situation until they could afford to buy a main like a municipal plant. Mm-hmm. Um, but that municipal plant, for whatever reason, may not have ever come to fruition. So those septic tanks have been in the ground since then. And then once they fail, they start to crack, and then all the sewage leaks into the groundwater, and then it creates this whole problem. Um, and then the last the last thing, obviously, is PFAS is just becoming a bigger issue. Um, it was a big issue last month when Amy was talking about the um, WQA fly-in where mm-hmm. they were talking to legislators and everything, and it continues to be a big issue um, for all the other major associations in municipal side as well, um, especially now that EPA has an action plan on it. Oh. So um, one of the things that a lot of people are talking about is the documentary that Amy had mentioned last month, too, and... I just watched it um, this week and really recommend anybody who's in this industry to watch that because it gives a really interesting history and kind of an alarming history of how it all came to be. Can you remind us what the name of it is? It's called The Devil We Know. Okay. Um, It's on Netflix, um, so I imagine most people can find it there, but it's also on Amazon Prime, Google Play, and iTunes. So um, you can find it by going to thedevilwenow.com. There's... All sorts That's of, awesome. Yeah. They have some write-ups on there, too, that give, like, enhance the documentary as well. So definitely recommend watching it. I would watching it. love to watch that because in the water quality product sphere, PFAS is just mm-hmm. always a conversation. And I'm always hearing about how states are starting to create their own legislation um, for tighter standards because mm-hmm. on the federal mm-hmm. level, they're just not getting the response that they're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. And what did you say about the cows you told me about in oh, the documentary? Oh, yeah, so in the documentary, there. so this is dating back to, I want to say, like the 60s or 70s. I can't remember the when this first happened, but um, when, when DuPont was um, discharging its mm-hmm. its waste and stuff into local water streams in Parkersburg, West Virginia, mm-hmm. um, it ended up on this, like, farmland, and this farmer was taking a video camera and filming video of, like, what was happening to his to the local streams and what was happening to his cattle. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they showed happening with the cattle is that over time, there was a black, like, like, like substance showing up um, at the bottom of their teeth near their gums, basically mm-hmm. between the two of them. And it, I mean, it just looks like you're like the Teflon lining of a pan. Yeah. Um, so it was like so wow. obvious that like, there is a connection here, mm-hmm. uh, but it's like it's really alarming. And Physically like, obvious. Yeah, and and uh, the other alarming thing was what Amy said last year about how they tried to find a control group for this study to find out how pervasive this was in people's blood, and they could not find any living people who didn't have PFAS in their system, in their blood. So they had to get wow. archived blood from before the Korean War to be the control group. Um, again, just really alarming stuff. PFAS is not dying, not going to be a dead issue no. anytime soon. It's only going to get bigger. Um, it, it's unclear kind of what the regulatory environment is going to mm-hmm. be from EPA moving forward, whether they're going to do an MCL or not. Um, but it is something that AWWA is following, and um, as well as WEMA, because that would force mm-hmm. manufacturers to provide solutions that mm-hmm. can deal with PFAS for yeah. um, mun- municipalities and whatnot. Well, before we transition into more discussion about um, drinking water and um, water resources, I did want to bring up another news item that um, we've, um, or actually just a news trend, I guess. Um, there's a there's an item uh, by Business Insider titled Seven American Cities That Could Disappear by 20." 20- 
100 or by 2100. Wow, it's crazy <laughs> to say that. Um, and it's about rising sea levels. That's something that um, we've been seeing a, a lot of attention being given to and something that we're going to be giving more attention to on our side as well. Um, and how there are many cities across the U.S. who are becoming much more vulnerable to flooding. Um, and within the next 100 years approximately um and it's happening now so and this has to do with sea level rise which is connected to climate change and it's just another example of how this is this is really actually happening it's not just something that we're talking about um i mean just take um harvey and um houston Mm -hmm. texas being hit by harvey and the other hurricanes like um that's a great example of how um flooding is becoming a real, real threat to a lot of cities. So I just want to list off um, the seven cities that they listed as the most likely to disappear underwater by 20... By t- oh, my gosh. 20, 2100. <laughs> 2100. Okay. Um, <laughs> New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, there's actually another article from the New Yorker with a great illustration of how New Orleans is already sinking and mm-hmm. how um, the... Uh, the sea level rise around that area is basically just absorbing all the land. Um, It's kind of um, alarming to look at. Yeah. Um, Just to add, tack on to that, um, New Orleans already is below a below sea level city. Mm -hmm. So the fact that it's sinking even more is pretty scary. But then also um, just to like reiterate it is that, uh, so Dr. Brian LaPointe, who I talked about Mm -hmm. doing stuff in Florida, he's also following that. Okay. Um, so he, we, we talked a little bit about that while I was at WEMA as well. And it's some, like something that we de- certainly want to cover or like get a little bit closer to. Um, maybe we yeah. can have doc, maybe we can have Brian on, on the podcast at some point. So we oh, can da- right talk idea. to him a little bit more about these issues and what he's seeing and where his research is headed and cool. what he's getting. I like that learning, idea. So yeah. anyway, anyway, um, some other cities were Miami, Florida, um, Houston, Texas. And like I said, this is, um, in the U S um, which I already brought up, Houston. Atlantis, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Um, that was that city was hit pretty hard by Hurricane Sandy. Um, and it, its close proximity to New York is also kind of, it also threatens New York. Um, which in my, um, the last issue of Stormwater Solutions, I have um, a feature about stormwater, man- stormwater management in New York, assigning a grade of C-plus to the city for how they manage stormwater. Um, and something that factored into that was their um, their attempt to predict major storms like this and how they react to them. Also, Charleston, South Carolina, Boston, Massachusetts, Virginia Beach, Virginia um, is the last one. So this is pretty scary. Um, a lot, a lot of you live in these places, know people who live in these places, visit these places, um, and they might be underwater yeah. in the, for the next generation. So, um, uh, yeah. can we even, yeah. So. The, the, the other interesting thing about vanishing coastlines is how it like turns into a water scarcity issue due to mm-hmm. too much water, <laughs> Yes, which is also it's like an, an interesting thing. But. If the plant's underwater... Yeah, well, and, and like like Lauren was saying, saying saltwater intrusion. And the too. ground, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So speaking of groundwater. Yeah, so there were a couple issues that I wanted to bring up. April's kind of a big month for water crisis-related anniversaries. 
Um, April 21st is the one-year anniversary of what Cape Town, South Africa originally thought was going to be day zero, the day their taps ran dry last year. And thankfully, they were able to postpone that date due to water conservation efforts across the city. Um, and right now, they are still under water restrictions. In fact, their amended level three water restrictions are in effect, which requires everyone to use 105 liters or less of water per day. So this day zero topic is something we've kind of been focusing on pretty strongly in our group because it's not just localized to one location. Water scarcity is a global issue. So we've been trying to kind of raise the conversation with that. Yeah. And that, so that allotment, that 105 liters, mm-hmm. that, that sounds like, is that about double what it was last year at this time? Does that sound yeah, right? It's yeah, something like something that. like that. So certainly things have gotten better, and they've, uh, I, I'm assuming they've had some rains and been, been yeah. able to get some of those desal plants on. I need to follow up with that to learn more. I think more, their but... dams are at about 40% capacity right okay. now. So when you look at what it was last yeah, year, it was that's... like almost 17% or something. That's which a huge... is scary. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, in our own country, we're facing similar things happening in Lake Mead. There's mm-hmm. a record drought going on there as well. Mm-hmm. So. so our day zero coverage has really ex- expanded beyond Cape Town, mm-hmm. right? So day zero now we think carries a meaning of just um, water scarcity and, mm-hmm. and, and how these uh, regions deal with it. And Definitely check out our video series that we did. Yeah. It's housed on Water and Waste Digest, so mm-hmm. www.dmag.com. But um, yeah, we we'll know include th- those videos too in the, um, yeah. the podcast post yeah. as well, or at least the first one of them, and then link to the other ones so that you can see them too. We know that water scarcity isn't just an international issue; it's happening right here mm-hmm. in our backyard. So not only are we dealing with, like you just said, too much water. And then we're also with flooding, and then we're dealing with not yeah. enough of it. And, it, and it, I think one of the things too that is interesting for Day Zero, for from my perspective, is like we like we were just mentioning with the vanishing coastlines, how that turns into a water scarcity issue. And then if you talk about the algal blooms, it's like the water's there, but it's toxic. So that's a nut creates another water scarcity issue. So it's not just about water is vanishing; it's mm-hmm. also about clean water is not available yes and potable water is difficult to find and that's the real crux of things and finding the solutions to those Mm -hmm. is kind of part of why we're covering it Mm -hmm. so strongly is just learning more about what technology is available to handle these situations and to provide solutions to so something that i think about sometimes is so we're all located in the chicagoland area is how much we take for granted being next to the Great Lakes. Yeah. When I, As we've been traveling across the U.S. doing different day zero coverage, um, noticing how all these communities, water is top of mind mm-hmm. for them just in their day-to-day. And for us, we've really taken for granted this huge amount of fresh water that we have just right mm-hmm. here available for us. Um, and it's something that everyone has to keep top of mind. Mm-hmm. Even if it's available for you, not just for people who are struggling with it. And on that on that similar note, that I'm sure that Lauren can talk about mm-hmm. this too is, um, it's also it certainly is top of mind for a lot of those people. But it, we also don't highlight quite so often how many people are on well systems in mm-hmm. this country. There is a, a huge number of people on small systems and on well systems yeah. in the, in the U.S. compared to other countries and like 
a lot, the comparison is often made that the UK has 14 water districts and the US has thousands. Oh. Like, the, it, so the different the difference between that is massive and that that, that shouldn't um, shouldn't be discounted too because contaminated groundwater, like what do you do with a, when you have a well? So yeah, I recently read an article in the New Yorker, I believe, that was really shocking that actually, Four percent of the nation's water is on small systems, and they account for eighty percent of the water violations, which mm-hmm. is like an absurd statistic. Yeah, yeah, it's just it really we I, I don't think we highlight quite an, often enough how many people are on small systems and, and wells because I mean when we're just tying back into the PFAS issue and why it's such a big deal for the WQA or WQP audience mm-hmm. is. A lot of the people, a lot of the people have well systems, and they need the point of use and point of entry system to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, they may not be connected to a municipality at all. You know, there's just a yeah. lot of rural land in the U.S. that um, sometimes just gets overlooked. And I think living in living in Chicago land, sometimes we completely forget about that. But yeah. um, it's difficult to keep that in mind when we're covering these things too. So. For this month, we have an interview with iTron. It's tied in really well with um, Earth Day, which was in, in March. This is coming out at the end of March here. And we recognize that Earth Day can kind of sometimes lead into water scarcity issues. And so we had an interview that we had scheduled. Um, uh, Laura, would you like to sure. say a little bit about that? We chatted with Mark Pizek. He's the Director of Solution Sales for Water and Public Power at iTron. Um, so here's that interview. Okay, so we are on the line with Mark Pysik, who's Director of Sales for Water and Public Power at iTron. Mark, could you just start by telling us a little bit about your work with iTron and um, touching on your work, particularly as it pertains to water scarcity? I've been working with water utilities and and or utilities in general for about 20 years, uh, mainly on the water metering side of um, the water industry. And uh, here at iTron, I focus a lot on uh, major opportunities and uh, major solution offerings to large water uh, utilities throughout North America. Awesome. And I, I know that one of the things that iTron does a lot of is um, the non-revenue water and trying to either find it or to recover it. Um, could you talk a little bit about like the impact that that has, A, on utilities and, B, on communities when it comes to water conservation and potential water scarcity issues. Sure, sure. So um, in general, you know, non-revenue water, um, I believe, you know, has a couple different variations to it. There's there's authorized usage uh, of non-revenue water, and um, that's items that the water utility themselves utilize in their operations like hydrant flushing or uh, bleeding water off of a certain section of a water distribution system for for water quality purposes. And um, those are known uh, items within the non-revenue water realm that uh, are accepted by the water utility to to make sure they do have, uh, you know, clean quality water uh, going to the premises of of the homes and businesses they serve. But then there's a whole other sector uh, or portion of non-revenue water that I, I call um, unauthorized or unintended water usage. 
Um, and these, these are the ones that you're talking about that have a large impact on the utility. So there's, um, there's theft of service. So there's people uh, essentially stealing water. There's people taking their water meter, you know, out of, out of its uh, meter horn, filling up their swimming pool, then putting their meter back in their meter horn. Um, so that's, that's non-revenue water that's um, not being accounted for. There's bad data in, in a lot of these systems. So when you construct a new home, if you put a certain size meter in a home, say a 5 8 inch meter, uh, and then you go back to the billing department and the customer service folks and you tell them you put a 1 inch meter in, um, for the life of that meter, until you find that bad data, you're going to be billing that person inaccurately. So that's some non-revenue water that's impacting um, these utilities. There's also a number of different leaks in the systems, and, and especially older systems throughout, say, the Northeast. Um, there's, there's a lot of non-revenue water uh, leakage um, just seeping into the ground and never coming to surface that um, a lot of utilities may or may not know about. And then there's also just uh, older meters that are inaccurate and under-registering. Um, in many cases, a lot of utilities call their meters their cash registers. And um, if your cash register is broke or under-registering, uh, you're not realizing the full potential of your, your revenue um, stream and you're being wasteful, obviously. I'm wondering if you can speak to any kind of effects that non-revenue water would have on the environment. Sure, sure. Um, so at ITRON, you know, we, we, we like to consider ourselves um, being very resourceful when it comes to, to water and energy use. So um, non-revenue water definitely has a large impact on both, you know, water and energy. It's no different, I guess, in my opinion, than, than leaving your lights on or leaving your car running when you don't need to. Um, you waste a lot of energy to pump the water, to create the proper pressure to get the, get the water uh, to these homes. And if some of it's leaking into the ground, you're, you're wasting that pumping energy. And you also utilize um, a lot of chemicals and operational expense to treat the water. Um, that you're taking either out of the ground from wells or out of a lake or a river. So uh, you're wasting quite a bit of chemicals, too, to, to make that water uh, potable for, for the customers. So from an environmental standpoint, um, you're doing much more than just wasting water. You're wasting energy. You're wasting chemicals. You're wasting operational expenses. So that's, um, that's really you know, why ITRON's involved in trying to solve the non-revenue water uh, pro problem, you know, throughout the world with, you know, our partners and our customers. Yeah, so then, like, on the aspect of uh, for finding that non-revenue water, you had mentioned some some leak detection uh, strategies. What are some of the, the common ways that people are trying to uh, find those leaks, and what are some of, like, the newer ways, some of those new smart water ways that people are looking at finding those leaks to either capitalize on finding more revenue or to just impact their bottom line overall? Yeah, yeah. So let's – I'll talk about two different types of leaks, um, and – and one does find non-revenue water, and one is more of a customer service-related aspect. So the first one 
um, is what I call uh, metered leaks, so leaks inside the home or building that you're serving. You know, these are leaks in the home that are maybe just a toilet running constantly or, um, you know, somebody left a hose on at a commercial site. And through through new technology, through new advanced meters and um, new advanced radio devices, uh, we're, we're able to capture those leaks near real time and send those real-time alarms and flags up uh, through, say, a fixed network into some software that immediately flags the customer service rep to um, then alert the customer uh, and or the utility that there's a potential leak. So this, this helps on the customer service side by, you know, identifying and alarming that customer within days of the leak happening versus a month from now or two months from now when they receive their very, very high bill. So that's a metered billing leak. The other, the other uh, leaks that I'll talk about and talk about the techniques of um, finding them and, and, and new technologies that are, that are emerging are the non-revenue water leaks out in the distribution system. So uh, one uh, technology that, that ITRON has, and, and so does um, some, other, some other folks and other companies, is acoustic leak detection. So in acoustic leak detection, devices are permanently installed on piping, whether it's um, before the meter at a residence or before the meter at a pit location, um, or on fire hydrants or valves out in the system. And uh, acoustic leak detection listens to the pipes. Uh, it listens for certain sounds and uses algorithms to determine potential size of leaks within the distribution system and potentially the area that the leak's coming from. So that's, uh, that's one aspect um, where utilities are are fighting against non-revenue water and trying to find leaks uh, in their distribution system. Another example would be district water metering. In the district water metering um, approach, um, you section off parts of your utility, uh, say 2,000 meters at a time. You, you aggregate the volume that goes through those 2,000 meters. You compare it against a master meter that you install uh, in that district, and you compare the volume if it's if it's off by a significant amount you know that there's some non-revenue water uh, occurrences happening in the system you don't you don't necessarily know what it is within that district but you now can go out and investigate there could be theft of service there could be leaks in that district um, there could be a number of, of things happening that at least now you know that specific area you can go into um, and identify what, what is causing it. Another another um, aspect of of what people are doing is uh, data evaluation. So if you take your AMI data, if you take your pressure management data, if you take your SCADA data, if you take your hydraulic modeling data, and you put it all into one system and you evaluate uh, that data, uh, people are coming up with algorithms um, to identify potential problem areas within your system. Um, and that's doing it through, through software and algorithms. Um, 
and essentially identifying a certain area that now your crews might go out and focus on to help them identify, you know, potential non-revenue water leaks and or theft and or pressure management problems within your system. So, Mark, do you see more attention being given to um, leak detection in the water industry? And how do you see this conversation around leak, leak detection, especially as we encounter more water scarcity? How do you see this conversation evolving moving forward? Sure. I, um, I definitely um, see more activity on leak detection uh, within the industry, within, within North America uh, and around the world. And I think one of the main reasons is, is um, the ease to work it into, say, an AMI program. So people are putting up fixed networks. They're putting up networks to read meters and get a lot more data out of their meters um, on a daily basis to be able to solve some of these problems. And at the same time, uh, you, you can incorporate a leak detection program, say an acoustic leak detection program, uh, at the same time um, to combat uh, non-revenue water at the same time that you're upgrading your meters or your AMI systems. So they're taking advantage of that um, aspect of being able to incorporate it into an overall larger program. Uh, but then there are also just a lot more activity, and it seems as though um, people are more focused on the environmental impacts and the stewarded, you know, stewardship that that they want to um, portray and, and be a utility that's that's looking into the future and being resourceful with their with their natural resources across the board. I can definitely see it unfolding that way. Thank you so much for offering your perspective, and um, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Mark. Well, thank you so much. Coming up um, in May, I'll be going to the Smart Water Area Networks Conference in Miami, so that's more a smart water-oriented thing. That'll be looking, interesting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Um, yeah. Smart water is certainly becoming a bigger and bigger issue. It was a massive buzzword at ACE last year, and I imagine it's going to be the same this year in Denver in June. So um, getting ahead, getting to learn a little bit about that ahead of going into mm-hmm. going to ACE will be really, really nice. Yeah, yeah. And then I think they... Lauren, you're going to the Ohio Stormwater yeah, Show, right? Yeah, I'll be at the Ohio Show next month. Um, and I just want to give out a shout-out to any ladies <laughs> um, because um, let me know if you're going to be there. We're, um, our new publisher, Robin, I keep calling her new publisher, but she's been here, five she's been here for five months now. Yeah. But this will be her first Ohio Show, and we're um, wanting to you know, go out for maybe drinks or something with some wonderful ladies in the industry. So please let us know if you're available, um, and we'll set that up. Along that vein, at the WQA show, I'm really excited to go to their Women in Industry event. Mm. This is going to be their inaugural event. So it starts with a couple sessions about being a woman in the industry, and then it also has a networking event. So Mm. really exciting to see some more women groups popping up in the industry. Cool. Okay. Um, Housekeeping? Any housekeeping? Yeah. So, well, I mean, just the normal housekeeping. We're on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, um, like, subscribe, all that stuff. Um, It does help out, especially reviews. Those can bump us up in queues and get people to see us more. Mm -hmm. Um, So definitely 
do what you can to help us out. We would really appreciate it. And of course, as always, if you have any um, anything you want us to cover or anything you want us to talk about, you can reach us on each of our by each of our individual brands, Water and Waste Digest, Water Quality Products, and Stormwater Solutions, or by emailing talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com. We're very responsive to that, um, and we'd love to hear from you. So my stomach keeps growling, so let's go get some lunch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, that's it. Okay. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. It. Thank you. Bye. Bye.